So we're in a series called Ready for Anything. Joshua chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Now you may remember last week, Joshua is kind of the sequel to Exodus. Joshua is commissioned on the heels of Moses. So he's Moses' wingman, his protege. Uh, and so he's been groomed for this for a very long time. God finally commissions him and says, hey, I will be with you as I, w- I am with Moses. And we talked last week particularly about how the 21st century kind of skill uh, that, that God really requires of us and equips us for in the time in which we're living is really readiness. It's not the ability to know everything certainly and go from point A to point B. It's being able to be ready for anything. So that if God says, as he says to his people throughout the time, once they're freed from Egypt, they wake up every day, pillar of cloud and fire. They get daily bread on the ground. And so the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, uh, give us this day our daily bread, that is what we pray for. And so God asks of us to just simply be ready to do what it is that he calls us to do. Okay? Now, after Joshua is commissioned in Joshua chapter 2, you go, okay, he's the new guy. He's the new guy in charge. In chapter 2, he commissions two spies. Now, you may remember Joshua was a spy himself. So he was one of the 12 spies. Two of them believed that they could take the land. Ten of them uh, thought that everybody was too big in the land. And so Joshua was one of the two that had uh, the courage to basically say, if God's given us this land, we can take them because God is with us. So now Joshua just sends two spies. And he basically, even though God has said, I'm going to give you the land, he says, well, let's go check it out anyway. The spies come to a house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stay there for the night. Now, I'm going to get a little awkward here. There are two, two thoughts, okay, and the scholars are kind of divided on it, and I think you can look at it either way. The question of why they're spending the night at Rahab's house comes up, and you've got to deal with it. Uh, if you look at the language used, it suggests extracurricular activities are the issue. If you look at the circumstantial evidence, which is kind of where I tend to lean on this, they picked it because that was the house with the best vantage point in the city. It was built into the city wall, it was up high, and you could see in and out of the city from that spot. So I don't see any real reason, and she's lauded as a heroine throughout, even in the New Testament. Uh, So I think that probably that's the way we ought to lean. But they go there, they spend a night at Rahab's house, and somebody sees them go in there. So the king of Jericho sends his own people there and says, hey, tell the spies to come out. Rahab, give them up. Now, Rahab maybe was prepared for this or something. She had piles of flax on her rooftop. And so she tells them, hey, go hide under the flax piles on top of the roof. So that's what they do. They go up there. And she tells the king's men, hey, look, uh, you just missed them. They were here. I don't know where they were from. I don't know where they were going. I did see them, though, head out just right before you got here. So if you hurry up, you might be able to catch them. And it was right about the time of the day when the city gates shut. So they take off. The city gates shut, which means two things. Uh, They're locked in is one thing that means. And the other thing it means is that they're, at least for the time being, most of the troops of the king are, are out. So there they are. They're lying under the flax heaps there. Um, and as that happens, she sends these people off, and the city gates get shut. So the two spies are locked inside Jericho, buried under the flax uh, piles. So in Joshua 2, 8 to 11, she then goes up to the roof and decides to talk to the spies. Here's what she says. It says or the text says, Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. 
For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord, your God, is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Well, look at this. Look at this now. So Rahab saves the spies because she fears the Lord. Very important for what lies ahead. She knows that God is giving Jericho into the hands of the Israelites. And so, you know, being an enterprising businesswoman, she proffers a deal. She basically says, look, I've saved your life. That can continue. Or when you guys come and you take the land, you spare me and my family and anybody that's their fam- my family's family. You spare us, I spare you. So the spies have brains and they say, okay, sounds like a deal to us. With this caveat, if you tell anybody about it, then the deal's off. If anybody leaves this house, meaning if you've got family that don't all fill up inside your own house, meaning we're giving you a one-house hall pass from the destruction that's going on. So you need to leave this scarlet rope. Okay, now there's a whole bunch of... People write volumes on this kind of stuff, okay, in the, in the realm of theology. Some people think it signified the, essentially the red light district of Jericho or whatever. In reality, she probably just had that stuff laying around. She lowers them down with it, and they say... Okay, leave it in the window so that when the armies come in, they know that's your house and they're not to touch you. Okay, so it's kind of eerily reminiscent of another story in the Bible, right? The Passover. Paint the lamb's blood, that's how we know that you're followers of God. But if you don't paint the lamb's blood over the doors, then the angel of death's going to come by and and bad things are going to happen to good people, so to speak. So here it's leave the scarlet rope hanging down from the window. The two spies return to Joshua, and they go, the Lord has given us the whole land, for all the people in the land are terrified of us. The Israelites eventually then take Jericho, but Rahab and her house are spared. And something very interesting happens. She becomes part of Israel. She just jumps in, lives among the Israelites. She goes from outsider, I mean a profound level of outsider, a Canaanite worshiping foreign gods and a prostitute to an insider who becomes the mother of Boaz. Amen. The maternal mother-in-law of Ruth. Mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. She makes the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame list. The Heroes of Faith list. And in James chapter 2, we'll get there a little bit later, James points her out as a perfect example of how faith and works go together. She believed in God, so therefore she hid the spies. Okay. There's this whole issue here, her being a prostitute. What do we do with that? So you just do a few good things and it all works out in the end? Hmm. I mean, if you're an Israelite woman, you got to you got a husband, kids in your tent. Rahab's now shacking up in the village. What do you say? Do you go, oh boy, so excited? Do you roll your eyes and go, hmm, stay away from her? You can camp outside the village. 
Like, what must it have been like when, when she rolls in and they know that God had directly commanded that they kill everybody in the land? But they saved the prostitute. Now, if you read it carefully, it creates some issues. So you find yourself going, okay, what in the world is this in the Bible for? Why not just go, he commissions Joshua, they cross the Jordan, they take Jericho. What in the world is this story even in the Bible for? And in fact, it's so out of place that some scholars try to make the case it was a later edition. Because they go, oh, you know, this just doesn't make any sense. I'm going to make the case that it very much makes sense. Amen. And I want to ask you to go on a little journey with me. We're going to pull out four lessons. Uh, two of them we're going to go at a little more length. Two of them are going to be pretty short. Skips of the rock across the lake. All right? And let's take a look at this very bizarre story and see what it is that God has for us as we go through it. All right? So I'm going to be very explicit and linear today. So engineers of the world rejoice. Here we go. All right, first one. God is already at work wherever you go. Notice that before the spies arrive, okay, both Rahab and the entire city of Jericho, she says, are already terrified of the Israelites because God's works have already made themselves known there. Amen. He already has gone before them. He's already prepared the way. So by the time they get there, imagine if he had not gone and prepared the way. She hadn't heard anything about God before in her whole life. Who are you? Who's Israel? Never heard of them. Who's Yahweh? Never heard of him. But God has already gone before. His reputation precedes him. So let me think about this then. If I'm walking through this world and I get down on my luck, sometimes I get depressed. I start think, looking around at the world around me going, hey, where is God? Where is God in all this mess that we see going on on a daily basis? Boy, it sure seems like we're losing a lot of battles in the kingdom of God these days out around the world. This might call me back and go, you know, maybe God's gone ahead of me in ways that I can't yet see. You will never run into a person who isn't being pursued by God long before you got there. That's right. Amen. Okay? So long before you even got around to, to getting it to be a part of their life, God was already pursuing them. Amen. Not just the good people. I mean, the Rahabs of the world. People that are the Canaanite prostitutes of the land. I mean, I don't know what the current equivalent would be. Maybe a, um, a Wiccan priestess? I don't know what the, what the current... Like, there's no real parallel for her in, in our world. But the fact that, that God has already kind of gone before, God's planning to give them the land, and so the reputation that he has for drying up the Red Sea and the battles that he's given them victory in has already preceded them. So by the time the spies actually get into the land, a lot of the work's been done. She's basically going, I know God has given this into your hand. Spare me and my family, please, because we've spared you. I will say this, it is weird when you realize how big the world is and how vast the, the work of God is. It's very refreshing. Think about this. If you haven't been out of the United States, I highly recommend it to you. 41%, sisters and brothers, of Protestant Christians live in Africa. 41%. That number is going to be 53% by 2050. Second place, you guessed it, Asia. It's not us either. <laughs> See, right now, when you get in your little bubble, right, you, you lose sight of all the stuff that God's doing all over the world and how he's already gone before us and how 
He's bringing people closer to him all over the world. In these little out-of-the-way places that you might not even know. I'm going to give you a list now. These are the 10 fastest-growing Christian, where Christianity is growing the fastest in the last, just the last 10 years. Check out this list. This is a, okay, Sao Tome and Principe. Now, look, I had to look that up. I don't even know where that is. Um, some of you may know, and Bhutan. I had to look that up, too. Last 10 years, Sao Tome and Principe, island country off the coast of Africa. Fastest growing Protestant Christianity growth rate in the last 10 years. Bhutan, South Asia. Okay. Niger, Singapore. Oh my, Iran? Iran. Okay. Benin? No idea where that is. Azerbaijan, I've heard of it, but I don't know where it is. Senegal, I know where that is. Honduras, I know where that is. Laos, I know where that is. You know what it does is it makes me think that, that God actually operates outside the United States. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> you willing to take the leap with me? Oh, my. What I'm saying, sisters and brothers, is that God is not just bound to what happens here in the U.S. And sometimes when you feel really down about what's going on in your life, it might do you some good to just poke your head up and go, he's working pretty powerfully on Sao Tome and Principe. You know, 200,000 people. Bhutan, 700,000 people. That's on the move. See, he's not just bound to what happens here in the U.S. He was already working in Canaan before Joshua even showed up. Before the spies arrive. His fame is spreading because of his mighty acts without a missionary ever stepping foot there. That's right. So one lesson for us insiders, perhaps, is that God is at work abroad in his world, not just within the Christian community, and that some of his activities uh, maybe benefit us. I mean, the stuff he does to lay the way for where we go. And this truth should be very humbling to us and very inspiring at the same time in reminding us that church is not the only arena of God's dealings. Now, on the one hand, aw shucks, I thought we were the only ones. But at another level, God is pursuing outsiders even when we stop. Does that make sense? That, that the prodigal son is a story about a lost son and a father who's focused on him, on the lost one. It's leaving the 99 for the one. These are illustrations given of the heart of God, so Christianity doesn't exist to make me feel special. Christianity is here for me to join in what God's doing to redeem what's lost, to be a part of what keeps him up at night. That's what I'm here for. That's what we're supposed to be here for. Number two, today's outsiders are tomorrow's insiders. Rahab is persuaded to help the spies because she sees things happening around her that demonstrated God's existence despite her lifestyle and her idolatry. The spies do not preach a thing to her. In many ways, it's actually the opposite. She's the one that's actually talking about the greatness of God while they sit there hiding under the flax piles. Now, in the same way, let me suggest this to you, that many of the people that you know are far closer to God than you think they are. Amen. Now, am I saying, well, are you saying they're saved? And I don't even think God looks at it in that 
and that kind of uh, dyad, or what is that, bi-biad or bio, bipolar? That's not the right word either. There's something, yeah. Duality, there we go. That's the word I was looking for. This man uses words for a living, people. Uh, it's more of a continuum. Okay, and God knows when a person is saved. And yes, I'm not saying that there's no moment when we know that we're saved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Here's what I am saying. I'm saying that the moment they show up to Rahab's door, she is a lot closer to God than they think this Canaanite prostitute is. Amen. Does that make sense? So when you sit out there and you go, oh, hey, look, you know, and, and the people that we encounter, sisters and brothers, out there that are, quote-unquote, outsiders, okay? Um, that doesn't mean God hasn't gone before us. Uh, that doesn't mean that God doesn't know who they are. And it's not just you're the in camp or the out camp. See, you can be part of the in camp and actually be walking in disobedience against God. And, get this, you can be outside and be walking in obedience to God. Whoa, wait a minute now. No, you can't. Yes, you can. That's what the Good Samaritan does, right? That's what Cornelius is doing. God says, no, he's he's lacking one thing. This guy is a good man. And he, he's, he should be a Christian. He's just not. So Peter, you get up and you go and you tell him about the gospel. And you know what? Remember what Peter says. No, I can't do that. It's unclean. And God says, well, don't declare that unclean if I've declared it clean. That's right. Amen. All right. So I'm not saying it's not challenging. But what I am saying is that if Jesus is known as a friend of sinners, then I need to take a look and at least consider that one of his most redeeming qualities was that he saw who people could become rather than just who they were. Does that make sense? How should we treat outsiders? Well, we should see them as people whom God has on the way somewhere. Not people who have reached their final destination in life. Because that's the other thing. When you get into these in and out things, then you go, hey, I'm in you kind of take your eye off the ball. And I've watched, I'm telling you, I've been doing this a long time, and I've been in the church my whole life. And I will tell you that I've watched people at 40, 50, 60 years old, been Christians their whole life, just turn around and, and spend the rest of their life walking in complete disobedience. And I've watched people who've wasted most of their life outside turn it around. The second person I ever baptized was a 92-year-old woman. 92-year-old woman. Who says you can't teach an old dog new tricks? <laughs> holy cow, man. I was, uh, I was afraid she might dissolve in the baptistry. I was like, holy cow, 92. Yeah, I mean, she was just a bag of bones, man. I was like, holy cow, but it was so awesome. It was like 92. 92, man. Oh, it was so good. Oh, and this is important that we help them understand that God is closer to them than they think. We need to expect to see signs in their attitudes and behavior that reveal Christ's love starting to work in them. Tell them that. Tell them how you see God working in them. And that's important because they may be too down on themselves to recognize the signs. I was with a friend of mine last week. She's actually come here a few times. Uh, and she was down on herself this week. 
And we were talking about spiritual things, and she goes, she goes, I feel like I'm a bad person trying to do good. I'm not a good person who sometimes does bad things. See, that's what, that's what it's like to be down on yourself. Right? Maybe you've been in that camp. You feel like, I've flopped so many times. I try to do this, try to do it, try to do it, I can't do it. And so you just go, you know what, everybody else seems to be doing this just perfectly. Which is a lie, of course, but we sure polish up nice, right? And so I must just be bad. I must have been defective merchandise coming out of the... When God put me together in my mother's womb, he must have slipped. When he got to the character part. And I told her, I said, look, I don't think a bad person thinks that way. The fact that you care tells me you're not a bad person. If you're a bad person, you just go, I'm just a bad person. Bad is awesome. Good, I hate good people. Da 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 da, da right? Um, you're not fundamentally bad. Every person is created in the image of God. That's what the Bible teaches. And if they're created in the image of God, who's completely good, then that means at least some piece of them bears the mark of perfection. Not perfection in the sense that we use that term, which means their whole life's together all the time. It means that when God put them together, they bear the mark of the Creator who cared enough about them to mess with their life in the first place. And so I need to walk with reverence in how I deal with these folks. Uh, I took a couple of classes a couple of weeks ago uh, at Columbia University, New York, trying to get better, trying to get sharper. And I went because I knew I would be around really smart people, and I also knew there would probably be almost no other Christians in the class. Now, you may be going, why would you do that? Because I need my own thinking challenged. 37 students total between the two classes. I think there's 19 and one, 18 in the other. By my count, there were three Christians. I was one of the three. It was me, a gal from the Federal Reserve Bank in Atlanta, and a guy uh, that is, he's Chinese. He lives most of his time in Seattle. He's the guy that ships all the, the mugs, ceramic mugs from Starbucks back and forth across the ocean. So he said he was in shipping. I didn't know he basically had the holy grails, you know, going across <laughs> the ocean back and forth. Okay. But they ranged from, from, from these folks who were kind of in hiding within the class to way over on the other side, very antagonistic, um, uh, transsexual, biological male identifies female and lesbian. So this is a guy who's attracted to women that dresses female, named Vanessa. Very antagonistic toward me. So I go in, and uh, right away, everybody was looking at me like, I mean, I, I must have gotten asked, what are you doing here? Uh, I don't know how many times. I asked the professor, have you ever had another uh, pastor in any of your classes? He said, no. Now, if they're really far from God, you know what they do? If God hasn't gone before me, if he hasn't done anything, here's what happens. They ignore me the entire class. They try to keep their lunch down when they're near me. That's not what happened. They wanted to ask me all their questions. So Vanessa, who I just told you about, there was an empty chair at the table. It was Vanessa, two people from Nigeria, uh, the guy that ships all the oil for Saudi Arabia, two Nigerian bankers, 
<laughs> Sounds like a bad joke start, doesn't it? <laughs> a pastor, two Nigerian bankers, and a Saudi oil baron going. Well, but uh, and there's an empty chair. So I go and I sit down. Yeah, so, so they're all talking, and, and I just pull up, get my little plate of mac and cheese and whatever else we had, and I sit down there. And almost on a dime, she stops what she's doing, whips around to me, says, Hey, this morning, actually, I was watching a YouTube video where there was a pastor in Tennessee, and he said that he wanted to see all gay people rounded up and exterminated. What do you think of that? Of course, the whole table's like... <laughs> All right, so spotlight's on you, Pastor. Time to go. Now, these are not dumb people. These are like the smartest people in the world, okay? And so here we go. And we start going back and forth. And my job and my task there is not to arm myself with missiles, right? The wise move is to try to recognize how God has already worked how he is working. And in that case, it was pretty obvious. My, here's my job. I, I need to be a role model of a humble, gentle Christian. Amen. Right now, that's what's needed. Now, there are other times, okay, where God calls me to the battlefield. Yep. All right? So I'm not saying that's never the case. I'm saying in that moment, with everybody watching, okay, and I'll be dog, seven days later, I would almost call us friends by the time it was done. So see, you can do it either way, right? You can can look and go, oh, well, they're going to mistake me for somebody who approves of everything that they do. Is there anybody? I don't approve of everything you do, and you don't approve of everything I do. None of us are under the, the... Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't any standards biblically or anything like that. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that if in the conquest of the land, God can reach a Canaanite prostitute. Maybe, maybe, he can reach the dude with the tattoos. Your crazy mother-in-law. Your, your whoever. Okay? And it doesn't matter how corrupt they might be at the moment. Because the gospel is not about who you are now. It's about what Christ did then. What he's doing now. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? Sisters and brothers, the gospel isn't that everybody in this place is supposed to be all perfect right now. What it means is I am fundamentally convinced and convicted that Jesus Christ died for my sins, that he's calling me to a new way of life. It doesn't matter how far away I've been, he can bring me close to him. Okay? New creation. Buddy of mine, Matt Chandler, great preacher, absolute phenomenal preacher um, in the DFW area, he told a story... And, 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 you know, normally I, I like to lift up us, us Christians a little bit and, because I do think a lot of people dogpile on Christians unnecessarily. But he told this story, and I've had similar ones, of a time when he was a freshman in college, and he was, he's an evangelist. Like, this guy really loves outsiders. Um, and, and he said, you know, I brought this gal, 26-year-old, single mom, never been married, had three kids, different guys. Who was and there was a concert that night, and I wanted her to come hear the concert, thinking maybe, hey, we can introduce her to stuff. He says, so the concert that night, he says, they take a break in the concert, and somebody gets up to preach. And they decide that that night, it's a college gathering, that the guy's going to talk about sex. 
why you would do that? That's like, <laughs> all right, everybody, let the music stop. We're going to talk about sex for 20 minutes, you know. And, but that's what they did. So he gets up there, and he starts going. He takes a rose, like a, a, a nice rose, and he has them pass it around the room, right? And they're passing it around. He goes off on this whole thing about, you know, sex, and it's kind of one of those angry old school kind of things where it's like, hey, you know, yeah, everybody's smiling until you got syphilis on your lip or whatever. I mean, like, you know, just kind of like crazy. And the guy's going, what are you doing? What are you doing? Is what Chandler's thinking as this is going around. No, 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 don't let this happen. It was the rose is getting passed around, passed around, passed around. And then, by the, so anyways, like the guy's starting to wrap up. He says, hey, where's that rose I was passing around? And they bring it up. And it's all falling apart by this point, right? Because it's been passed through all these people. And he goes, you see this? Who would want this? Nobody wants this. And that's when, you know, Chandler goes, I got viscerally angry at this guy. Because that's the point of the gospel, right? He wants the rose. He wants the rose. So what in the world are we doing? Looking at the Rahabs of the world we're in and going, who wants the rose? Nobody wants the rose. He wants the rose. Can we get that? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Because if we can't get that one, we can't get the gospel. We just can't get it. Now, does that mean, notice that's fundamentally different, by the way, than laissez-faire, anything goes stuff, which is basically we take the standards of God and bring them down here. No, no, no. It's using the gospel to pull people up to God's standards, which is, begins with the blood of his son, and it calls them to a new way of life. So the question becomes then, for those of us who would presume, for instance, to go to the corner of Grand Avenue, build a building that people would come inside from all walks of life and spend their time, day in and day out. How do you see them? We must learn to see the transformed person of the future rather than the captive person of the present. Amen. We have to learn to see what God is doing in their life. Not just how Satan is holding them captive. Here's what it means. It means honoring Jesus, the liberator, not Satan, their temporary slave master. Amen. That's what it means. And we have to be able to see the promise, not just the enormity of the task. See, when we see a person outside the faith, they aren't flawed creations. They were created in the image of God, just as we were. And I've been thinking about what I was going to write on that wall when we get down to the Ritz later today. And initially I thought, I'm going to write my kind of 2 Timothy 1.7, my favorite verse of the Bible. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. I changed my mind. I'm going to go back to Acts, the book of Acts, and Paul in Athens, when he looks around, he sees the idolatry, and instead of going, well, I've had enough of Athens. No good God-fearing Christian would hang out in Athens with all this idolatry. It says it worries him and it troubles him. But instead of driving him to go crazy on the people, 
He looks around, he sees their, he goes, he, he starts preaching to the synagogue on the street corner. He ends up in front of the Areopagus and he goes, he goes, I see that you're very religious. <laughs> and he starts with where he sees God working. Okay. And he says, I see this other statue over here to the unknown God. Let me tell you about who he is. And he starts his magnificent sermon, walking them through from creation all the way through. And in Acts 17, 27, this is what I want to put on the wall this afternoon. In the Ritz, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. Amen. Man, that verse will preach in there. He's not far from any of you. And he did it. He's done what he's done with this church, what he's going to do with this church, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he isn't far from any of them. God's purposes are always aimed at redemption, and he goes before us. Number three. We're going to get quicker here. God's mighty works speak for themselves. That's number three. Rahab seeks the favor of God's spies because she's heard of what God has done. She's heard about the Red Sea. She's heard about the battle victories, etc., etc. She knows that if God is with Israel, nobody can stand against them. Okay, this is huge. Rahab recognizes God's activity when she sees it. Most people I know that are not a part of Christianity yet, they still kind of recognize God's activity when they see it. It's kind of the case Paul makes in Romans 1. He says, one of the reasons that God made creation is glorious as he did, was so that everybody would look at creation and go, there must be a God. Rahab does the same thing. She hears what God has done, and she goes, that's what God's like. So God's with them. And she falls among this distinguished line of foreigners who acknowledge God's power and sovereignty. Balaam in Numbers 22, the Moabitess Ruth, the Syrian general Naaman, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, King Darius of Persia. You know, there are more. We'll stop there. But it kind of, even by the time that you get to the end and the crescendo of everything at the end of Revelation, you're sitting there and you have saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. God's pulling the whole thing together. So we need to, if God's works speak for themselves and they speak that loudly, we need to take advantage of every single opportunity we can to let people know what God has done for us and to give God the credit at every possible juncture. When something good happens in your life, glorify God for it. When our church is on the march, tell somebody about it. Tell them what God is doing and how He's moving. When you are healed of a disease... Tell someone why. If your marriage is restored, tell somebody who restored it. That's right. And let the mighty works of God go forth throughout all the earth and see what happens. See if God doesn't use it the way he does here. Rahab just heard about what had happened, and she goes, you know what? <clears throat> I know that uh, God did these things, and so we don't stand a chance against you guys, so I'll tell you what. We want to be on your side. I mean, pretty amazing. God's mighty works speak for themselves. Lastly, number four, Rahab the role model. <clears throat> She's lauded for faith in action. I mean, it doesn't do her any good to say, hey, you know what, guys? Um, you know, I believe in your God too, but I can't lie to the king. So, uh, 
Here they are. Go look up under those uh, flax piles up there. She's given credit. I mean, she's in the genealogy of Jesus. It doesn't get a whole lot better than that, right? But she's given credit in the New Testament <coughs> for being an example of faith in action. The genealogy of Jesus tells us that she became the wife of Salmon, the mother of Boaz. That would make her the paternal mother-in-law of another remarkable foreigner by the name of Ruth, who Matthew also mentions in Matthew 1.5 as he's going through the genealogy of Jesus. This implies a remarkable reversal of fortune for her. The once crafty Canaanite prostitute condemned really under what God had decided he was going to do with Jericho ends up a member of the prestigious royal line of David and an ancestress of the Messiah. The consummate outsider becomes the consummate insider in Israel. She and Ruth then share company with a couple of other notable women in the Davidic line of Jesus, including Tamar, the wife of Judah, and Bathsheba, the wife of David. Even more remarkable, in Hebrews 11, as he's going through the Hall of Fame list, by faith, Moses, by faith, Abraham, by faith, by faith. He takes his cue from probably Joshua 6.25, which explains that Joshua spared her life because she hid the men that Joshua had sent. Hebrews 11.31 interprets her welcome of the spies specifically as an act of faith on par with the other enrollees there in the actual uh, Hall of Fame. It was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now James 2.25 or so goes even further. Let's go ahead and put that one on the screen. So you see, we're shown to be right with God by what we do and not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith without works is dead. So Rahab is on this list of people throughout the Bible, outsiders that demonstrate their godliness through faith and works. We start with Abram, who becomes Abraham. He's not worshiping Yahweh right away. He becomes Abraham, father of many nations, or Cornelius, or the woman at the well, or the Good Samaritan, or Saul of Tarsus, who's actually kind of on the falling out of the right wing of the bus. But given the gentle wooing of the Holy Spirit and the persuasive power of the gospel, what this story kind of tells us is that nobody's doomed to be an outsider forever. Anybody willing to surrender to the wooing of the Spirit of God can become an insider free of charge. And our open door to outsiders, then, as a church, is nothing less than God's always open door to them. We're just not the people that go into God's house and lock the doors and say, you can't come in, because they're his doors. We just keep the doors open. The doors are open to prostitutes, warmongers, jerks, broken hearts, failures, successful people. People who have it more or less together. People who don't have a thing together. Surprisingly, to look at Rahab in a way is to look in the mirror at ourselves. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, that is what some of you were. 
He says to the church at Corinth, he rattles off this vice list and says, that's what some of you were. But she, Rahab, reminds us of what we were all like once. We were outsiders, pure and simple. And to look at her is to glimpse ourselves as God saw us before we came to Christ. The question becomes then, as we head out into the day and as we begin to gather around the Lord's table, are we more uh, ready as we leave the place this morning to be open? Again, it's not lowest common denominator. It's not taking God's standards and bringing them down. It's using the cross and it's using the gospel as a launch pad for people to go higher, to experience what new life is like in Christ. So this time we're going to be uh, taking the Lord's Supper. Those who are going to be passing the trays, uh, go ahead and take your spots. I'll offer a word of prayer uh, to Jesus, the friend of sinners. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Let us pray.